Hi, everyone, and welcome to the March 2021 episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Mishu, and this month we are looking at the emergency medicine practice issue called Management of Acute Urinary Retention in the Emergency Department and authored by Drs. Gelber and Dr. Singh. It's really quite a common complaint, and although we frequently think of this as occurring in middle-aged or elderly males, it does occur in women and even in children. And if you're in an emergency department without a local urologist who's super excited to just jump right into the emergency department for acute urinary retention, you should have some kind of algorithmic approach to how to relieve the obstruction and drain this person's bladder, and then hopefully get them the follow-up that they need. And this article does an outstanding job of reviewing all of the different pathologies in all of the varying presentations and the things that you might consider doing in your common everyday practice in order to make this presentation pretty easy and hopefully an unremarkable and satisfying stay for your patient. So let's start with the initial presentation. If they're coming to your emergency department by ambulance, hopefully there's been some information already gathered at the scene. Things that are helpful to know would be whether or not the patient is on any medications because those frequently have side effects. So gathering up the medications in their home or obtaining a list before departing from the home is important. Also, perhaps a history of how long their catheter has been in place if they arrive with one already. Did they have some kind of surgery? Were their instructions given? And what the status of the patient was when EMS arrived. So if the patient was uptunded, poorly responsive, with pinpoint pupils, and ended up requiring a dose of Narcan, that's pertinent information that you need when the patient arrives in the emergency department. There are many medications and even drugs of abuse that can lead to acute urinary retention. And so that information is very helpful to you and hopefully provided by our EMS colleagues. It's also helpful to know when the patient arrives with a catheter in place already, how long it's been in there, because chronic bacteriuria can occur in about half of the patients after having a catheter for just one week. So the presence of bacteria is really just colonization at that point, and then a further discussion has to occur about what's actually going on with the patient's symptoms. But if the patient is anything like the urinary obstructive patients I've seen in the emergency department, they're typically not in the mood to have a long, chatty conversation when they first arrive because they're in some pretty serious distress. So we start the algorithm with confirming the patient has urinary retention. So the patient's in front of you, maybe complaining of inability to urinate, frequency, hesitancy, or some kind of sensation of incomplete voiding, or is in pretty severe distress because they haven't been able to pee for eight hours, now it's time for an ultrasound. Whether you're going to use your point-of-care ultrasound in your handy-dandy pocket or on your ultrasound machine that's there in the department, or you're going to use one of the proprietary bladder scanners, it really doesn't matter. We're just out to confirm very quickly that the patient has urinary retention and how much volume is stuck in their bladder that you're going to have to drain. And this is where the algorithm in this article is very helpful. As soon as we've confirmed that the patient has urinary retention, we now have two pathways that we have to go down. One is initiating some kind of mechanical relief, and the other is trying to figure out what's causing the problem in the first place. 
The mechanical relief comes by way of catheterization or bladder drainage, and then they may be more prone to having a lengthy conversation, but that other pathway is very important. Determining that etiology is very significant for the patient and long-term care. So first, we're heading down the mechanical relief pathway. This isn't really a diagnostic dilemma. If they can't pee and they have a bladder full of urine, they need catheterization. And here the authors have some really good tips. First, lidocaine-based anesthetic gel, or lidocaine jelly. Instead of just the standard lube that comes in the Foley catheter packet, they actually recommend use of the lidocaine jelly. Now, they're very forthcoming in saying that the studies are kind of mixed on this, really. There is no evidence that shows that it really makes that much of a difference in patients, whether you infuse the lidocaine jelly and then wait two minutes or give them the lidocaine jelly and put the catheter in right away. There's not any solid evidence to show that it really reduces the discomfort all that much, but they still recommend it before attempting urinary catheterization. If you can put a Foley catheter in and it goes well and you're starting to drain the urine, then that's wonderful and you can stop in the algorithm there. But sometimes there are problems and if there are problems, then the second step is to escalate to a Coudet catheter. Now, there are great pictures in the article about what a Coudet catheter looks like. It's really a more rigid material with an angle to the tip that allows the catheter to hopefully make the bend around and through the prostate into the bladder. If there's prostatic obstruction, which is a very common cause, then the Coudet catheter is usually a little bit more successful, and the starting size is 18 French. And if that doesn't work, then they actually make a recommendation for the third step to be placement of a silicone catheter. If you don't have any of these in your emergency department, there are pictures, again, in the article, but they recommend starting with the 12 French silicone tip catheter because it is still rigid but has a narrow tip design that is actually better suited for bladder neck strictures. So if you've tried the standard catheter and that's unsuccessful, and you've tried the Coudet and that's also unsuccessful, then the problem may not be at the prostatic urethra. It may actually be further at the bladder neck, and a 12 French silicone tip catheter may be just the solution that you need. So that's step three, and we are rapidly moving through those steps. So unsuccessful Foley into a Coudet, unsuccessful Coudet into a silicone catheter. And the fourth step, unsuccessful silicone catheter, is placement of a suprapubic catheter. And I know what you're thinking because I thought the same thing. Whoa, whoa, whoa. At this point, I'm calling someone, right? We're calling a urologist or we're calling someone who's done this before. But the truth is, in the article, they do an outstanding job of showing us just how easy it is to place a suprapubic catheter. And these catheters have a few advantages. They're easier to care for. They're more comfortable for patients. They have a lower incidence of infections. And they allow for our urology or follow-up colleagues to do voiding tests without having to remove the catheter. So there are certainly some advantages. In the article, there's a set of images and a detailed description of how the catheter is placed, but it's actually quite simple. It involves a quick ultrasound to see where you're going to go. Make sure you can visualize the bladder. Then raising a wheel with some local anesthetic, making a small incision. And here you've got a couple of choices. You can use a proprietary suprapubic catheter product, something like a trocar. You just insert and slide out the 
trocar, and then the catheters in place. Or you could even use a central line, which I think is fascinating. You insert a needle, aspirate some urine, slide in a wire like you would for a normal central line, pull that out, and then use the actual central line venous catheter into the bladder and use an extension set and hook it up to a collection bag. And that's it. We can secure it in place like you would any other normal catheter. And now the patient is getting some relief of their urinary obstruction while you have the luxury of time to figure out why it was impossible to stick in a Foley catheter. So step four was insertion of the suprapubic catheter for the patient who's failed the standard Foley, the CUDE, and the silicone catheter. And now the article authors recommend observation. This is class three evidence, so there isn't an abundance of evidence out there to support the recommendation, but people can get something called post-obstructive diuresis. The phenomenon itself is actually pretty poorly characterized, but the article authors define it as more than 200 cc's of urine an hour for two hours, or more than three liters in 24 hours if they're being observed for that long. And with an incidence of anywhere from half a percent to up to 50% after relief of obstruction. Now that's a very wide range. So how are we going to predict really who's going to get it and who's not? The article authors recommend just observing the patient for up to two hours to see what their hourly urine output is after the obstruction's been relieved. These patients, if they develop this problem, can have pretty significant electrolyte abnormalities, fluid shifts, hypotension, and that kind of hypotension and drop in blood pressure can cause renal failure and other problems, especially if they have baseline anemia. So it's something you definitely want to be aware of if the patient already has multiple medical problems before you've even placed this Foley catheter or suprapubic catheter. In the event that the patient actually does develop this condition, then it's just admission, electrolyte replacement, fluid replacement, and typically it resolves in 24 hours. It's not a very complex treatment, but it is something that would require a stay in the hospital after relieving the urinary obstruction. And then finally, disposition. What are we going to do with the patient? Assuming everything went well, they're draining urine, they're not having any kind of vigorous diuresis, then they go home. Ideally, they follow up with a urologist in three days because there is actually good evidence to show that within three days, patients do better if they have the catheter out and have avoiding challenge as opposed to delaying that because they become prone to infections and complications and more discomfort. So three days is a good timeline. And then they should leave with some kind of alpha blocker. Again, this is class one evidence. So there is good evidence that starting an alpha blocker in a patient, especially with prostatic enlargement or one who has prostatic disease as the cause for their obstruction, is going to be very beneficial for the patient. It increases the chance that their voiding test in three days will be successful. It allows them to get the catheter out sooner, and it comes with very minimal side effects. So start the alpha blocker. Okay, so that's the obstructive part of the treatment. Now you'll remember at the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned there were two pathways. One was relieving obstruction. The second was determining etiology. And this can be a little more tricky, which is why you may want to do it after the obstruction has been relieved, because you're going to need to sit and talk to the patient. I know, I know who has time to sit and talk. But in this kind of scenario, 
The history is going to be very important. Medication review is exceedingly important. An honest discussion about drugs of abuse, because all of them can stimulate alpha receptors, things like amphetamines and cocaine and other substances the patient may be using, herbal remedies, drugs of abuse they ordered over the internet. All of these things can cause urinary retention, and honestly, the patients may not even know that this is related to that. So this gives us yet another opportunity to say, not only should you stop using these drugs for all of the multiple other health effects, but now you have a catheter in your bladder, and how uncomfortable is that? So there's certainly an opportunity to do some counseling, but it may be prescription medication related. It may be something new that they started. A history is very important. If there is a medication, then just simply discontinuing that medication while the Foley is in place until they can see the urologist in three days may be sufficient. If there is not a medication or drug history that gives us the obvious answer, then we have to start becoming worried about more serious issues, especially in women and in children. The majority of men end up having some kind of prostate-related issue, but even then it's not 100%. So we have to be aware that there are some more serious things like cauda equina syndrome, multiple sclerosis, transverse myelitis, autonomic neuropathies, AVMs, Guillain-Barre syndrome, maybe some milder things like simple urinary tract infection, but more serious infections like meningitis. Is the patient altered? Do they have fever? There are quite a few things to consider. And again, the article authors do a great job Table one in the article nicely categorizes all of the causes of acute urinary retention into structural, medication or toxicologic, neurologic, and infectious. And it even breaks down the structural differential by type of patient. In adult men, like we mentioned before, there is prostatic hyperplasia, urethral strictures, or some kind of pelvic mass in women gynecologic neoplasms, so an examination is exceedingly important, fibroids, large fibroids, pelvic abscesses, urethral stenoses or strictures in children, posterior urethral valves or congenital malformations, neuroblastomas, and even phimosis and paraphimosis are possible. So when it comes to the etiology portion of the pathway, have a conversation with the patient if you can. Make sure that you've reviewed medications and any drugs of abuse that they may be using. Make sure to ask questions about weakness or back pain, trauma, or saddle anesthesia, looking for red flags for a potential cauda equina syndrome. Their physical exam is very important, especially in females, pelvic examination, looking for pelvic masses, looking for decreased rectal tone, looking for sensory levels or reduced reflexes. And then finally, asking the historical questions for infections, fever, dysuria, malaise, and asking them questions related to potential malignancies, weight loss, surgical history, cancer history. All of these elements are going to help us narrow down that differential to make sure we're not missing something serious or life-threatening when we're discharging the patient after relieving their obstruction. And that's the end of the algorithm. There are some good questions that are answered in the article that are important to note. Things like, 
do patients who have a catheter placed in the emergency department require prophylactic antibiotics during the procedure, before the procedure, or even empirically being placed on antibiotics orally after the procedure? And the answer is that there's good evidence that that's completely useless. It's not helpful to the patient. It does increase their risk of microbial resistance, especially when they become colonized, and it is not shown to be beneficial. So no antibiotics. What about how fast we can drain the bladder? There is this mantra that if we put in a Foley catheter or relieve an obstruction, that we can't drain the bladder too quickly, and we have to clamp the Foley, and we have to slowly drain it over a couple of hours. And the answer to that is, again, there's good randomized controlled trials that show that that's also not true. Drainage as rapidly as possible is acceptable. There is a slight increase in patients who have rapid bladder drainage in the category of hematuria, but this is actually minor, self-limited. And lastly, changes in blood pressure were not statistically significant between the people who had rapid bladder decompression and the people who had it slowly drained over two hours. So just let it flow as fast as it'll empty to get the patient comfortable as quickly as possible. Another little pearl in the article was the PSA. Is it useful in acute urinary retention? The answer is no. Regardless of what the level shows, the, our approach in the emergency department is the same. Trending the PSA over time in patients who have a history of prostate cancer may be of some benefit, but for us in the emergency department in the acute setting, don't send a PSA. It's not helpful. There is also an interesting discussion about disposition. What do we do with the patient who now has a catheter in place? Here in the U.S., common practice is discharge with three-day, hopefully, urology follow-up if it's accessible in the community. Otherwise, across the world, there's pretty global variation. In France, it says in the article that most people are actually admitted to the hospital and most of their catheters are placed by urologists. And yet in the Netherlands and Denmark and Mexico, most people are actually sent home. So make sure you have some kind of community resource for these patients, whether it's going to be a three-day follow-up with their primary, who's comfortable removing the Foley and just doing a voiding test, or with your local urologist. It's helpful to have this planned out ahead of time. What's the expectation for what we do with these patients, and when am I supposed to call you or let you know if there's a complication? And lastly, what am I supposed to do if I identify a phimosis or a paraphimosis as the cause of the patient's urinary obstruction? Well, the authors have a solution for that as well. They have guided us through how to perform a dorsal slit procedure for phimosis and how to reduce a paraphimosis. These are anxiety-provoking procedures. And I'm not talking about for the patient, I'm talking for us. They're not procedures we perform commonly, but they're technically not difficult. They're just anxiety-provoking. So take the time to look through the article, familiarize yourself with the procedure, look through the article, save the images, or better yet, save the entire article somewhere on your mobile device, or remember you can always access it at ebmedicine.net when the case arises. And remember, don't be afraid of suprapubic catheter placement. 
it's a Seldinger technique, just like we put in for central lines. It's something that is certainly within our wheelhouse to perform in the emergency department, and it is not technically complicated. Although unfamiliar, it's not something that we should be afraid of or shy away from, and it may actually be more beneficial for our patients depending on the presentation. And that's it. Again, thank you to Drs. Gelber and Singh for writing an outstanding article for us on acute urinary retention, always available to you at ebmedicine.net. Before we end today, I want to make you aware of three exciting developments at EB Medicine. First, there is a new airway management program available to you at ebmedicine.net titled Current Topics in Airway Management mechanical ventilation, supraglottic airway devices, and intubating patients, which contains four modules, including everything from ventilator management to intubation of pediatric patients and management of peds patients on the ventilator. So that's an exciting program available to you today on the website. Second is a program coming April 13th with Dr. Scott Weingart. That is a live online one-hour discussion with Q&A on traumatic hemorrhagic shock in the ED. Again, he'll be our guest speaker and I'll be there moderating, so hopefully you'll be joining us for that. We'll put the sign-up link in the show notes. And lastly, keep an eye out for EB Medicine's key points and pearls from 2020 for emergency medicine practice and pediatric emergency medicine practice, which is coming next month. That is a free publication included with new and renewal orders. And you can go to ebmedicine.net forward slash subscribe for the latest offers if you're not a current subscriber. And that's a wrap. I sincerely hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I look forward to talking with you next month. Until next time, I'm Sam Ishu.